So we are in the third week of this series where we are looking at Christianity and looking at other religions. And I realize that, um, I'll be honest, I realize it may be a strange topic uh, for us to talk about, and it might even make some of us a little uncomfortable uh, thinking about and looking at other faith traditions, even within our own tradition. Um, However, uh, I will tell you that several of you came up to me over at least last week and even a couple of today who have come and talked to me about interactions that you have had over the last week uh, with people of other faith traditions. And um, we have had a couple of people, I know at least within the context of the office staff where people have come into the church Uh, of other faith traditions and uh, we have the ability in all of those circumstances to be able to be evangelist for Jesus Christ in that moment Uh, but it is hard to do if you don't know your brothers and sisters if you don't know your neighbors if we don't know what it is that they believe uh, it's hard for us to to be in the moment and to be present and so that's really my hope my hope is that we learn one nugget, if that's all we learn. We learn something uh, about our brothers and sisters and maybe something that's common to our faith or maybe it's something that is different that we're able to, to remember. And so my hope is that that's where we come out of uh, this series, that you're stronger in your faith, stronger in what you believe as Christians, uh, but also you're more aware of what your brothers and sisters that are in other faith traditions so that you're able to be more uh, evangelistic. Uh, A couple of passages of scripture. If you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to Romans, uh, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read to you a couple of verses. They'll be on your big sc- on the screen. Uh, these are some verses we're going to work through today, uh, but these are verses that kind of help us as today as we talk about Buddhism. Uh, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Uh, first, I want us to look at 8.18 that says this. I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. And then a few verses later in Romans 8, 28, we read these words, a passage many of you may be familiar with that says, we know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then if you'll flip over a couple of books to the chapter, to the book of Philippians, in Philippians verses, chapter four, verses six and seven, uh, we read these passages. Don't be anxious about anything. Rather, bring up all of your requests to God in your prayers and petitions, along with giving thanks. Then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. So as we work through the message this morning, we'll come back to to these passages. Uh, I will start today with, again, a disclaimer that I am not an expert on Buddhism. Uh, I'm studying along with you. Uh, Some of you may have family members, you may have friends uh, that you can talk to and you can affirm whether what we're talking about is accurate. Some of you may have Buddhism in your history. At the end of the service, please come up and share with me. Uh, We're learning together. Uh, So my disclaimer to you is I don't pretend to be an expert. Uh, What I do, and I said this last week and I think it's important, what I probably am most convicted of is that probably all of us know less than we should. Uh, And so if we learn anything, uh, then we're moving at least in the right direction. Um, Buddhism is a 
it would be a lifelong journey of studying, just like Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity. Uh, there are so many different ways that people express Buddhism. So if you were to ask, if you had 10 people who follow Buddhism here, uh, if you were to ask a question, you might get different responses. Uh, there's different expressions of Buddhism. There's Zen Buddhism. My son had a class in Zen Buddhism this past year uh, at seminary. Um, there's uh, Tibetan Buddhism. There's, there's so many different expressions of that. So just know that what we're going to try to look at is, is just some of the common teachings of Buddhism so we kind of get at least a familiar uh, uh, understanding of what it is that they, that they follow. Um, now... Think about history, the timeline. We looked at this timeline last week when we looked at Hinduism. Again, don't try to read it, uh, but here's my point, which is, so we saw last week was David wrote the Psalms that we, that we believe in, wrote those around 1000 BC. So he was writing poems, he was writing prayers to God. Well, this was about the time that the Hindu Vedas were being written down. So the Hindu Vedas were given orally back here, even around Abraham, but they weren't written down till about 1000 BC. So they were an oral tradition, just like uh, Christianity was an oral tradition. Uh, however, you move over here, this is when the uh, Jewish people were taken into Babylonian exile. Uh, this was about the time that Buddhism came to be about. So I just want you to kind of get a timeline that about the time that the Jewish people were in exile in Babylon was when uh, Siddhartha um, came to his enlightenment, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, Siddhartha Gautama was the, uh, the person who became the Buddha. Uh, and so he is known as Siddhartha prior to that experience, and then he is known as the Buddha uh, after that experience. And that uh, he was born somewhere around uh, 567 or 570 BC and, and uh, lived to about 483. Uh, BC. About the time that um, Jesus was doing his ministry on earth, people were compiling the teachings of Buddha and put into what's called the Pali Canon. Uh, and so it was all these stories about um, Siddhartha and, and, and his experience uh, to become uh, the Buddha. Um, he was born in Nepal. Uh, what would be considered today in Nepal. Uh, and he was a prince. His father was king. His mother was queen. Uh, and the story of Siddhartha being born is somewhat of a pretty miraculous story uh, in and of itself. So the story says to us that the mother was given a dream. And I don't remember all of the details about the dream other than there was a dream that had to do with uh, an elephant and these multi-tusks and there was carrying lotus flowers and that she was touched on the right side by the elephant, and when she was, that Siddhartha was conceived. Uh, and so this was his miraculous uh, conception at that point in time. And so she brought in all of these sages who would come in and try to help her understand her dream, and what they told her was he was either going to be the greatest king ever, 
or he was going to be one of the greatest, what they call ascetics, that he was going to be one of the greatest uh, sages, learned people, uh, uh, holy people that we're going to be able to learn from. And so he was going to be a person of self-sacrifice to a degree. And so his name was to be called Siddhartha, which means, by the way, he whose aim is accomplished. And so Queen Maya, uh, she goes to her father's home to, to, to prepare for giving birth. And she steps off of the chariot and when she steps off of the chariot, she leans onto a tree and Siddhartha comes out of her right side completely unaided. And then Siddhartha, a newborn infant, walks seven steps in all four different directions of the compass, north, east, south, and west. And then is to reported in the story is to have said this, no further births have I to endure for this is my last body. Now shall I destroy and pluck out by the roots the sorrow that is caused by birth and death. And this is the story, the miraculous story of, of his conception and birth as the way that the people who follow the Buddha uh, believe and has been told. He, he goes on, his father, he's living, he, he's a prince, remember? Noel, seven days after he's born, his mother passes away. Queen Maya dies and his father does everything she can to protect him from any uh, suffering. She, he, he watches over and takes care of him. And so Siddhartha grows up in this lap of luxury um, with really no problems in the world. He has all of the wealth and all of the riches that could possibly come his way. And yet what he learns or at least experiences is that in that moment, that wealth and the, the riches, the, the lap of luxury does not seem to satisfy him. And so he's still seeking something that would bring satisfaction, something that would help him. And, and we got to remember that at this moment, Siddhartha is Hindu. And so we learned last week that in the Hindu faith, there's really a, not a very... Uh, a personal connection with God. And so Siddhartha uh, grew up yearning for something, but he had no connection to, to God to be able, a personal connection to be able to explain this. And so by the age of 29, Siddhartha is really struggling. He's trying to figure out the world. And so what he wants to do is he wants to go out and explore the world. He's kind of lived in this in this protected bubble, if you will, of the, of the castle. And so he, uh, he, he decides he's going to go out and explore the world. And his father, in an effort to continue to protect him because he's done it his whole life, tries to make sure that his experience is a positive experience. And so he goes out into the world and the father has taken care to make sure he doesn't see anything that is going to cause him any problems. And that goes really well, except for the end of his trip, he sees an old man. And Siddhartha had never seen an old man. And so he comes, he's talking to his charioteer, and he says, is that going to happen to everybody? And the charioteer turns to Siddhartha and says, yeah, everybody gets old. And this created this um, existential dilemma in Siddhartha's mind. Because... Aging is a part of life. He comes back and he says, I'm going to go back out. I want to go explore the world again. 
And so his dad tells everybody, okay, get everything good. Get all the old people out of the streets. Uh, Don't let him see anybody who's old. And so he goes back out to explore the street and everything is fine, except he sees somebody who is sick. And he turns to his charioteer and he says, is this what happens? And he said, charioteer says, yeah, at some point in time, we're all going to get sick. So he goes back. He's still got this dilemma that's going on. He doesn't understand. So he goes back and he says, I'm going to go back out into the world. And so the dad says, okay, get all the old people and all the sick people off the streets. And he goes back out there and that works really good until he sees a dead body, a corpse. And he turns to his charioteer and he says, you know, is this going to happen? And the charioteer says, you know, everybody is going to die. And so again, this dilemma, y'all can get this. I mean, are y'all, I mean, do y'all not struggle with getting old? Do y'all not struggle with getting sick? Do y'all not struggle with the reality that we're all going to die? We all can understand this angst that, he, that he's experiencing. Uh, and so he, he, he goes back out and he sees a, what's that called? An ascetic. He sees somebody who is this learned, uh, holy man who has devoted his life to to sacrifice. And so he says, maybe that is what I need to do to be able to, to work through this anxiety that I'm experiencing. So he goes back, he leaves his wife, he leaves his child, he leaves the lap of luxury, he leaves everything. And he goes through this period of life where he um, empties or, or sacrifices himself in order to try to achieve some level of what we now call enlightenment, but some level of, of awareness of resolution to this angst that he has. Uh, and this, to me, is a dilemma that we all can understand. We all see people who are sick. We don't understand why they're sick. We all see people who are getting old or we're getting old and we don't like it. All of these experiences we can really relate to, at least I think we can relate to Siddhartha. And so he looks at this and he tries to figure out And see, he found no peace in religion of Hinduism because there was no personal connection to God. So this did not help him in any way. And so he began to to go through meditation and meditation and meditation. For six years, he tried to find some resolution to this dilemma that he was experiencing. And the story tells us that after a period of about 47 days of meditating, he was sitting underneath a, a tree. And I kind of got a picture of what the tree would probably look similar to. It's now called what's called the Tree of Enlightenment. And after 47 days of meditating, he felt as if he understood how to be released from this angst. And it is that he became enlightened. And in that moment... Siddhartha became the Buddha. Um, the enlightened one is what Buddha means. It's the, the Pali word is, is bud, B-U-D-H, and it basically means to wake up out of the fog, to wake up out of the, the sleepiness. And so he became the enlightened one. And his own desire to, to end suffering... Um, in that moment, he experienced nirvana. We talked about that last week. He experienced the release 
the way he understood it. But instead of casting off his, his life and his experience, he decided to, another act of self-sacrifice, he decided that he would teach everyone how to move through and become enlightened. So the next 45 years, he spends teaching uh, uh, how to, to, to get this point where you can deal with the angst that you experience in this life. And when he was about 80 years old, uh, he passed away. Um, before he passed away, he is quoted as saying this, everything that has been created is subject to decay and death. Everything is transitory. Work out your own salvation with diligence. And so what I want us to think about today is I want us to think about what are these essential teachings. Um, and I'm very careful. I try not to use the word belief. I probably will at some point in time today, but I'm trying not to because from what I gather from people who are Buddhist is belief is not the, the correct word. It is the teachings of Buddha. Buddhism itself is not a religion of beliefs. It is a, a philosophy with teachings that people who follow uh, the Buddha, they try to follow the philosophy. Now, the first thing that I would tell you is my understanding of Buddhism, it is non-theistic, meaning it's not, it's not an atheistic religion. Uh, nowhere in their teachings do they say there's not a God. It's just they don't say there is a God. Um, it's non-theistic. And that kind of makes sense when you think about Siddhartha's story because he tried religion. He could not find peace in religion. And so for him, it was, God was irrelevant in that sense that there was no reason to bring that in because it was you trying to overcome this dilemma, this existential uh, struggle that you're having in life. And so it was not about a uh, God in that moment. So the idea of God in Buddhism is really a, a moot point. It has nothing to do with the, the suffering, the angst that you feel in this life. Um, so as he sat there and came to his understanding, he came to four noble truths about the, uh, of which is kind of centered in Buddhism. And let me share these four noble truths with you. One, suffering is an integral part of life. Folks, we have a common connection to what we believe and what people who are Buddhists believe because we believe suffering is part of life. So for Buddhists, suffering is an integral part of life. The second noble truth is suffering is caused by an attachment or craving or desire. So from the Buddhist perspective, suffering comes because you are attached to certain things. And because you are attached to these things that are transitory, that your attachment is what causes suffering. So if you are attached to youth and you get old, suffering is because you're attached to your youth and youth is transitory. If you're attached to this life and you know that you're gonna die, you have suffering because life is transitory. You get what I'm saying? And so your suffering comes as a result of attachment or craving or desires. And we'll come back to this in a minute, but there's some common connection within Christianity that we, you know, we, we don't believe we should be attached to a lot of the transitory things that are in this world. And it does create suffering to a degree. Um, the third noble truth, craving or attachment and thus suffering can be overcome. So 
if you're not attached to them, then you don't suffer. So if you can not be attached to this life, then death doesn't tend to really cause you much suffering uh, in that regard. And so suffering, those cravings, those attachments can be overcome. Uh, And it's called a state of cessation. And this comes through through meditation. Um, And then the way to overcome that is the fourth noble truth, which is that there is a holy eightfold path that helps you to overcome your suffering. Uh, Now, you may ask the question, which is what I did, which is, okay, so what is this holy eightfold path, right? I'm like, okay, if I'm going to go that direction, what is this path? Well, there's eight, eight, eight steps. Um, two of the, the first two had to do with wisdom. So the first, right views or thinking or right intention. Now, right might not be the best word to use. You might want to think of it as complete or wise, So it might be wise views or wise thinking or wise intention. Uh, But this has to do with wisdom. And then steps three, four, and five, they have to do with kind of your ethical behavior. So it's right speech, right action, or right livelihood. Uh, And then the last three have to do with your mindfulness. So it's your right effort, your right mindfulness, and your right concentration. And so... What you see is these is the, this is the eightfold path that's going to help you to overcome the attachment, which then eliminates the suffering that you experience in this life. And so what you see Buddhism is really is a reformation of Hinduism. So that's why we had to study Hinduism last week in order to really get a grip of Buddhism this week. So much like Wesley was reforming the Church of England and all of a sudden there's the Methodist uh, that's, that, that's how Buddhism uh, came to be about. And so you have these important concepts that we learned last week. Dharma, karma, and reincarnation. They all kind of go into this same discussion when you're thinking about Buddhism. The karmic force of life. Build up. You do something good, it builds up. You have good karma. The karmic force of life is all you have. Uh, the way I understand Buddhism is the karmic force is is what is you, uh, and so that karmic force that exists in you. Uh, so, and then you have this cycle of life and death that you go through um, that reincarnation cycle, uh, but it is the transfer of this karmic energy. And so, this is where it's a reformation of Hinduism because for Hindus, there's a soul. The soul is God, the Atman. For Buddhism, there is no soul. Because remember, God is irrelevant. It's not a God or not a God. And so there is no soul. It's an an Atman, not soul. Uh, that would be the Buddhist uh, tradition. And so this is a huge distinction between Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, so what you have is you have this nirvana is waking up from this cycle of life and death. To release your karmic force into the uh, into the energy, I mean, in, in, into into the environment around you, and so that's really the the goal of Buddhism. Um, now, if you want to look and think about what are some distinct differences before we get there, I want to talk to you for just a second about some common things that we have with Christ, Christianity and Buddhism, uh, or something we can learn. Uh, one is the wisdom of 
Buddhism, the, the teachings. Uh, probably the most popular thing, some of you may have read it before when you were in school, um, was the Dhammapada, which is the kind of the largest collection or the most popular collection of, of uh, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist teachings. I wanted to read a couple of them to you because I, I think this is where you're going to kind of see some connection because all of them you could read in the wisdom literature of Scripture. Uh, let's read a few of these. Look at this. So one, in Dhammapada verse 5, it says this, Hate is not overcome by hate. By love alone is hate appeased. This is an eternal law. I mean, don't y'all see? I mean, that, that could easily be a teaching of Jesus, uh, that hate overcomes, uh, I mean, that love overcomes hate, that, that good's going to triumph over evil. Um, here's another one. Look at this in verse 100. It says, better than a thousand useless words is one single word that gives peace. Y'all remember when we talked about a sermon on the uh, uh, gifts of the Spirit and we talked about the gifts of tongue and we said Paul says in the Scriptures that he'd rather give five good words that everybody can understand than 10,000 words that are unintelligible. That 10,000 words that are unintelligible without love are just like a noisy dong or a clanging cymbal. Same, same idea and philosophy that, that, that a good word of peace is better than a thousand words that, that, that don't help. Another one, in verse 133, it says this, Speak not harshly to anyone. Those thus addressed will retort. Painful indeed is, indic- is vindicative speech. Blows and exchange may bruise you. It sounds very much like something that you would read in the book of James. If you were here about a year and a half ago, I killed a plant, right? Y'all remember that series where we talked about how words were going to hurt you and we had a plant that survived and a plant that died. I'm apologize for the plant. I will never be forgiven for that plant. However, <laughs> the point was that words hurt, right? That, that, that we have the, the ability, scripture tells us that we have the ability to bring life and we have the ability to bring death. We have the ability to bless people and we have the ability to curse people. The words that we say matter. That's, that's in essence what this wisdom is speaking. So there's much of the wisdom that we as Christians would agree. I think one of the strengths, if you want to look at one of the things that we can draw from, from people who follow the Buddha, which is this whole idea of meditation. We live in a world that we are going way too fast. And... People all the time, well, I don't have time to stop and study, or I don't have time to stop and pray. I don't have time to, to meditate and, and to spend time just me and, and, and God. We can learn from our Buddhist brothers and sisters the importance of meditation, of being mindful of the things around us. The Holy Spirit, we believe as Christians that the Holy Spirit is always working And so we can be more mindful of where God is, what God is doing. That's something that we can learn and we can appreciate about the way that they live out uh, Buddhism. But but don't get me wrong, there's much differences uh, in the way that we understand the world and the way that we understand God. Um, The fundamental difference for me is our starting point. Um, For Buddhism and Christianity, our starting point is the fundamental difference. For Siddhartha, God is unknowable. We talked a little bit about this with regards to Hinduism, but it's worth stressing again this week. God is unknowable to Siddhartha. 
for us, the beginning point of Christianity is that God is knowable, personable, wants to be known, wants to know each and every one of us as children of God, that God desires a relationship with all of us. And so our starting point, God longs for us to be in relationship with him. So part of the the heart of Christianity is that God understands all of the things that Siddhartha experienced. That God wants to be in relationship with us and so God sent his son so he could experience what it's like to be in the human condition. So Siddhartha struggled with death. He sent his son. Jesus knows what it's like to anticipate his death. Siddhartha saw people die. God sent his son so that Jesus would experience a life where people that he loved died. You know the scripture and the story where Jesus, I mean, Jesus weeps as he loses loved ones. And so this, this experience, this relationship, it's a, God doesn't, it's not this um, eightfold strategy that helps us move forward. The way for us to move forward as Christians is the path of Jesus Christ. And so God has experienced that and God desires for us to be in relationship with him. If I had to, the way Jesus sums it up, it's not eight, it's two. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the path of Jesus Christ. To love God and to love your neighbor. And then you think about the human condition as the difference between the two. Um, We do believe that you faced angst in this life. I mean, the core of our belief is that Jesus Christ at the age of somewhere around 33 experienced suffering and death for us. So it would be naive for us to think that we go through this life and not experience angst, that we not experience difficulty. And we do believe that you can be inappropriately attached to certain things. We can be inappropriately attached to power and position and money, wealth, the, the material goods that we experience in this life. But the answer for Christians is often not to become unattached it's just to become attached to the right things right look at what it says in Matthew chapter 6 desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness and then all these things will be given to you as well therefore stop worrying about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own see we're designed for attachment. We're designed to be attached to God. We're designed to be attached to God and we're created to be attached to each other. Chad talked about that with Judaism in the in the in the, the sense of community. We are designed out of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We're designed to be attached to each other and because of that attachment, we're going to experience suffering. If I love my wife, and I do, if I love my wife the way that I'm supposed to, when things happen to her, 
I feel pain, right? Those of you who have lost loved ones, that's part of being attached to a community. We're created that way. And then there is unmerited pain and suffering when I experience pain because of someone else. The, the, the youth and adults that just went to Guatemala, they saw all of the people who were experienced by um, uh, the devastation of the volcano eruption. And uh, they saw people who literally everything that they had was wiped away. It was unmerited suffering that has to happen because, I mean, that happened because of the way nature worked. All of those experiences happen because of the way that we relate to this world. And so for Christians, the response is not that we have to completely unattach from everything, but that we need to attach to the righteousness of God. We attach to the kingdom of God. And we can embrace suffering, which is a strange way to think about the different reaction than what Siddhartha might have suggested. We embrace suffering. I don't know about you, but for me, some of the most profound moments of my life have come in the midst of suffering. Some of the times that I have grown closer to God is because of suffering and experiences that I had in this life. And so we can embrace suffering. And, and then you stop and go, well, how, why can we embrace suffering? Because God tells us, go back to that passage in Romans, God tells us that he can wring good out of everything that we think of as evil. We can, anything that is difficulty, God has the ability to somehow make something good out of it. That's something, Michael and I had this discussion this week, something, that is something as Christians we have to believe and know to be true. When you're going through something, you have to know deep within you that God has the ability to make something good. You may not see it, it may be years before you see it, but you know it. That's an important distinction between us and our Buddhist brothers and sisters. We can embrace suffering. I'm not saying that we like it, that we enjoy it, but we embrace it because we know that God has the ability to take something that seems horrific and make something good, make something beautiful. That's the redemptive part of suffering. Amen? And then what happens when we die? For Buddhist, you're carried. You're, the energy, that karmic force moves once you have been enlightened it just moves and is absorbed into the environment. There's just this cycle of life, birth, death, and eventually it just dissipates into the, into the universe. This is a very, I hope you know this, this is a very different understanding than what we believe as Christians in the Christian faith. Um, we believe that, that we do have a soul, that, that God created us, uh, in his image. And what we believe is that Jesus Christ came to this earth to show us a way that we are able to live eternally with God. 
Jesus, what does he say? He says, I'm going to go. And if I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get you. That we have the ability to live eternally with God. Yes, you're going to grow old. Yes, you're going to get sick. Yes, you're going to experience suffering in this life. Because everything is transient. We go agree with that. But there is one thing that is permanent. You know what that is? God is permanent. And so we have the ability to know that God will come back. And that we get to experience eternity with him. And so that allows us, that passage in Philippians, listen to it again. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. Rather, bring up all of your requests to God in your prayers and petitions, along with giving thanks. Because then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. The peace that Siddhartha looked for his whole entire life, in my viewpoint, is found in Jesus Christ. You can be troubled, you can be anxious, you can be full of anxiety about what life is bringing to us. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God has the ability to give you a peace that cannot, you can't explain. And so when you find yourself in the midst of difficulty, uncertainty, even I have encountered people who have literally been on their deathbed knowing that they're dying, but been extremely peaceful because they have the certainty of Jesus Christ. Folks, that is a different understanding than those who follow the Buddhist teachings. We have something to offer. Yes, we can learn from them, but we have something to offer to the conversations with our Buddhist brothers and sisters. Share it. You have the peace of Jesus Christ. The peace that passes all understanding. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that we are able to experience your peace even in this moment. Lord, I know this morning several, several people in this congregation walked up to me with angst, worry, concern. I myself have uncertainty of what this week will unfold. Help us, God, to lean into you and trust you. To have faith in the sure and certain hope of Jesus Christ. And, oh God, we pray that as we lean into you, may we experience a peace that we cannot explain, we cannot talk our way around. We experience a peace that passes all understanding because we know that it comes from you. And as we stay in an attitude of prayer, if there is anybody in this room, if 
you don't know the peace that I'm talking about. I pray that you are able to call upon Jesus Christ in this moment. Because he is all that matters. I pray that you attach to him and him alone. And that we may all be able to leave this place. Knowing and experiencing the peace of Christ. As Michael sings and leads us in this last song, I invite you this morning, if you just need to trust, lean a little further into God today, please take time to come to the altar. Call upon the powerful name of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.